0: Hello and welcome to Episode 3 of The Beethoven Files. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to talk about two early cantatas composed by Beethoven at age 20. The first of these was composed on the death of Emperor Joseph II in 1790. Although initially seen as an embodiment of liberalism and the Enlightenment, Joseph had alienated many of his subjects over the years in part because of what some saw as his rather rough handling of the Catholic Church. But he remained widely loved and respected in Bonn, where civic and cultural leaders moved quickly to pay their respects. One of Joseph's ardent followers, Eulogius Schneider, began working on an ode to be recited at the funeral and suggested that a funeral cantata be composed as well, with a text by Schneider protege, and theology student Severin Anton Averdonk, and with the music presumably supplied by one of Bonn's most widely known and respected composers. Of course, the young Beethoven was not yet on that list, but perhaps because of Nefe's recommendation, or perhaps on the recommendation of Count Waldstein, fast becoming Beethoven's most important patron in Bonn, the young Ludwig was nominated for the task. But time was short the work would have to be completed in just slightly more than two weeks so that it could be copied and rehearsed in time for the March 19th ceremony. Of course, this highly condensed time frame, almost absurdly so for a ceremonial cantata based on a lengthy text, may well have been why one of Bond's more illustrious composers, perhaps Neffe himself, held back from volunteering his own services for the project. At any rate, Beethoven began working on the cantata immediately but to no avail. He was not able to finish the work on time, and as several commentators have suggested, the music was probably too difficult to have been performed successfully in the time allotted for rehearsal. Two days before the ceremony, it was announced that the cantata would not be performed for various reasons. Beethoven did complete the work probably later that summer, but seems not to have made any special effort to have it performed. And the work was not only unperformed, it was also widely neglected, until 1884, when the prominent critic Eduard Hanslick began to sing the praises of both this cantata and the one that followed, in celebration of the accession of Leopold. We'll begin by taking a fairly close look at the opening of the Josef Cantata, since it not only sets the tone for the entire work, but contains some of the cantata's most effective and dramatic music. First, Let's take a look at the text for the opening chorus in C minor and marked Largo. Death, it moans through the barren night. Cliffs weep again, and you waves of the sea howl it through your deeps. Yosef the Great is dead. Yosef, the father of immortal deeds, is dead, alas, dead. Schneider's text seems a bit overwrought to a modern reader, of course, but rulers were so often praised in just such grandiose, in generally hyperbolic terms, by their subjects, not just in official court or civic documents, but also in personal appeals and requests, that it was only natural that this sort of inflated language be used in a situation such as this. The orchestra provides an appropriately somber beginning, a unison C intoned softly and held with a fermata, followed by the entire C minor chord distributed among the woodwinds, here consisting of flutes, oboes, clarinets, and bassoons, along with the horns. This chord also held with a fermata. The two bars are then repeated a bit louder, with a new, tension-filled, diminished seventh chord now sounding in the woodwinds. The woodwinds continue, introducing the first distinctive melodic idea in the flute, consisting of a series of three- and four-note, mostly triplet-based motives heard over a progression that starts firmly in C minor but soon introduces some interesting and rather sophisticated, all things considered, chromatic harmonies. After two bars, the strings take over with an ominous motive, one seemingly influenced by Gluck's more grandly somber style that ends on the dominant, pauses, and then again intones the tonic chord in octaves. Let's hear that much. The next four measures constitute a virtual repeat of the first four, with the chorus now joining in to take the part of the woodwinds on a C minor chord with a perhaps surprisingly quiet declaration of tot, death. After the intervening strings again assert the tonic chord, a little louder this time, the chorus enters with a louder and more dramatic diminished seventh chord, just as the woodwinds alone had provided in the opening bars. This chord is again subject to a fermata, after which the chorus drops out briefly. But then, with the flutes continuing their insistent four-note triplet-based motives, the voices re-enter, on and off-beat, even more quietly this time, but crescendoing quickly to forte, declaiming tot once again, but this time holding the chord for two bars while heading for F minor, the subdominant in the key, which is again held fortissimo with a fermata. Let's hear it from where the chorus enters to that point. What we've heard to this point may be the most interesting part of the movement. It's certainly the most dramatic, but there are other points of interest as we continue on. The tempo shifts to Larghetto now a little quicker and to 4 meter, and the chorus delivers a powerful descending figure beginning in octaves on the line, It moans through the barren night, incorporating more tension-filled diminished seventh chords and ending in G minor. The next choral phrase, Cliff's, Cry It Again is a bit more expansive and almost lyrical, and hints briefly at a major tonality for the first time, as the solo quartet of soprano, alto, tenor, and bass are introduced for the first time. The soprano begins with a more embellished version of the previous choral phrase, and that phrase is then picked up in imitation in turn by tenor, alto, and finally the bass soloist, with each phrase darkening at its conclusion after beginning on a major chord. Soon the chorus enters, crescendoing dramatically at the words, cry it again, now in B-flat minor, although the passage ends on a deceptive cadence. The words, and you waves of the deep, howl it through your depths, the music turns to a major key, D flat major, despite the fact that the text remains as dark as ever. But this is really no surprise. Although the early glimmerings of Romanticism can certainly be detected by 1790, we are still within the classic era, and tonal balance, in this case between the darker B flat minor and its somewhat more peaceful relative major, is still an important component of the common style. Besides, there are plenty of musical elements still operating to keep the tension to a level commensurate with the gravity of the text, the constant swells and decrescendos in the choral parts, and the pulsating 16th-note triplets in the string accompaniment among them. And this respite from minor key gloom, such as it is, does not last long. The chorus's dramatic cries of Joseph, the great Joseph return us to the drama. But after those cries have again ceased, we return again to a major key, this time a peaceful A-flat major, which you'll hear at the end of my excerpt. But again, the relative calm of the major key does not sustain for long, and even as the solo quartet, beginning with the soprano, introduce a new expressive phrase, beginning with the leap of an ascending minor seventh, as each member of the quartet repeats the phrase, is dead, one at a time, and we move toward E-flat major, it's not long before another rousing choral declamation, marked by military-sounding dotted rhythms, proclaims that, Yosef the Great is dead, Yosef, the Father of Immortal Deeds, is dead, alas, dead. The soloists then return again, led by the tenor this time, once more with a lyrical phrase passing from one voice to another. The chorus has the last word, but it's a surprisingly quiet one, a pianissimo utterance of tot, tot, right before the movement seems to end quietly in E-flat major. I say, seems to end because there is a somewhat peculiar little coda tacked on featuring the woodwinds marked Più Largo molto Adagio, which is peaceful, almost languid in comparison with most of the movement. Does this suggest resignation? It's a bit too early for that, as the movements ahead will suggest. We'll hear the ending of the movement from the solo quartet's last lyrical contribution, to the chorus's quiet final statement and the somewhat unusual coda. After the relative calm of the first movement's concluding measures, the next movement begins with a restless, even agitated orchestral introduction that sets the scene very effectively for the accompanied bass recitative that follows. Here's a little of that introduction. The text of the recitative, which describes some of the evils which the great Yosef was able to overcome, reads in translation, A monster, fanaticism by name, arose from the depths of hell, stretched itself twixt earth and sun, and night fell. When the bass enters, the orchestra quiets briefly, but the bass's declamatory phrases are interspersed with further dramatic orchestral gestures marked by a number of crescendos and decrescendos. As you heard, the recitative concludes on a sustained orchestral A, which serves as the launching point for the next movement, an aria in D major. Here the text is more confident, describing allegorically one of Yosef's great achievements. Then came Yosef, with the strength of God, tore the raging monster forth, forth from between earth and heaven, and trampled on its head. The raging monster of fanaticism is frequently understood to refer to the unbridled power of the church and its clergy, in some ways a peculiar indictment to be made by a theology student, but such was the power of the Enlightenment, at least in late 18th-century Bonn. The orchestral introduction is in D major, it begins pianissimo and is marked allegro maestoso. It features throbbing, repeated eighth notes and second violins, violas, and cellos, while the first violins and later double basses contribute short, graceful, even cheerful-sounding dotted note motivic fragments above and below the repeating pulsations. The dotted rhythm motives become even more prominent and a little more ominous-sounding as the bass enters with the words Then came Yosef with the strength of God. Let's hear that much. As you heard, the bass's melodic line employs typical hero motives, restricted largely to bold triadic leaps, with phrases usually ending on martial-sounding dotted rhythms. This initial section comes to an end on an A major chord, the dominant of D major, with a fermata, after which the tempo increases to allegro a sigh, and Beethoven pushes the key toward B minor as the bass describes how Joseph tore the raging monster forth from between earth and heaven and trampled on its head. The melody, still retaining some vestiges of its earlier heroic posture, now takes on a much more urgent and dramatic tone, later featuring more virtuosic melismas doubled by the orchestra in octaves. Meanwhile, the orchestra continues its vigorous contributions between phrases, often characterized by dramatic crescendos. The harmonic progression underlying this section of the aria although somewhat repetitive, is a fairly daring one, with Beethoven introducing a number of chromatic chords along with the dramatic orchestral passages in octaves. From this point on, the text repeats, starting with the return of the original tempo and key of D major, and many of the same musical ideas return with it, although Beethoven stakes out some new tonal territory in the process. But we're going to move on now to the next movement, an aria for soprano with chorus. After a peaceful, even idyllic, orchestral introduction in F major, featuring the solo oboe and clarinet in combination with the lower woodwinds, The soprano begins with the text, Then mankind climbed into the light, earth turned more happily around the sun, and the sun warmed it with godly rays. Beethoven's melody combines longing and nobility quite effectively here, the former achieved mostly through a leap to a poignant dissonance in the second measure of the oboe's opening phrase, repeated later by the soprano we'll hear the orchestral introduction and the soprano's first two of five melodic statements, which become increasingly more active and expansive as they progress and which are separated by brief orchestral interludes. After a fermata on the tonic chord, the chorus enters, its role initially restricted to providing a warm harmonic backdrop to the soprano's continued solo. But eventually the chorus sopranos join in on the repeat of the soloist's final phrase, which makes a last reference to climbing into light, before continuing on to the next part of the text, the earth turned more happily around the sun which warmed it with its godly rays. Both soloist and chorus sopranos continue with a repetition of the soprano's second melodic statement, with altos, tenors, and basses echoing the text in sustained chords between solo phrases. From this point on, the melodic statements from the soloist portion are repeated in order, with the choral sopranos doubling the melody and the remaining voices mainly supplying harmonic support, marked with numerous crescendos, decrescendos, and sforzandos. We'll hear the last part starting with the orchestral interlude leading into the fourth melodic statement now sung by the full chorus. The soprano continues with an orchestrally-accompanied recitative, employing the text. He sleeps, freed from the cares of his world, still is the night, only a shuddering breeze touches my cheek, like the breath of the grave. Whoever's immortal soul you may be, O breeze, blow gently. Here lies Joseph in his grave, and slumbers in peaceful sleep until the day of reckoning, when you, blessed grave, deliver him to an eternal crown." The recitative marked Largo begins in D minor with a somber funeral march air, the soprano's line initially quite tentative as she delivers the first line of text. The music soon makes its way to A minor in a change in meter from common time to 2-4. Here the orchestra, primarily flute and first violins, exchange triplet-based motives as the soprano continues on with a more secure melodic line, one which remains measured at first, but becomes more expansive and lyrical as the key makes its way to B-flat major. At the words Here Lies Joseph," the music returns to its more somber tone, with diminished 7th chords undermining the major tonality, and, by the conclusion of the recitative, we find ourselves anchored in C minor. The recitative takes us to a soprano aria in 3-4 time E-flat major and marked Adagio con affetto," Affectionately. It begins with a noble but sweetly lyrical melody in the first violin, which is later expanded by clarinet and flute. Although serene by nature, the melody darkens after ten measures and introduces descending chromatic lines, which are also to play an important part in the soprano's solo lines. We'll hear up to the end of the soprano's first statement, which begins by quoting the first violin's melody from the introduction and ends in E-flat major while employing the text. Here slumbers in his quiet peace, The Great Sufferer, who on this earth plucked no rose without pain, the great sufferer who, with his full heart, bore to his life's end, with pain, the cares of mankind. There are a number of points of interest in this opening section. Among them are the colorful ways in which Beethoven treats the solo woodwinds and horns, and also the dramatic crescendos and decrescendos that often accompany the falling chromatic half-steps at the words The Great Sufferer. After the somewhat more agitated and dramatic setting of the second part of the text, a section which nevertheless ends on a fermata in B-flat major, the soprano returns to its original text and original melody, which she largely replicates until the conclusion, where she extends the final line poignantly with another reference to the second line of the text and a gradual but dramatic ascent to the melodic high point, an A held with a fermata and followed by a cadenza-like descending arpeggiation. But the soprano is not done. She continues to trade expressive phrases with primarily the orchestral woodwinds until the movement comes to a quiet close. We'll hear the conclusion of the aria, starting in the passage leading to the soprano's dramatic high point. It's an impressive aria and a colorfully orchestrated one. The final chorus repeats the text from the opening chorus, and in fact is little changed from the opening chorus, except for slight modifications in harmony and scoring, and adjustments necessary to conclude the movement and the entire cantata on C minor rather than on E flat major as in the opening chorus. Seen as a whole, the young Beethoven's first cantata is often described as excessively dramatic, the music reaching even beyond the text in that respect, and, perhaps, disproportionate in form. But its strongest moments, sections of the opening chorus and the sometimes majestic soprano aria, both of which look ahead to Beethoven's later opera, Fidelio, especially in its earlier versions, those moments are very strong indeed and may be the equal of any found in his vocal and choral writing before the Misa Solemnis. While it's not completely clear why the cantata on the death of Joseph was never performed, those qualified to have examined Beethoven's score must have thought highly of it, enough so that Beethoven was given the nod to compose the cantata celebrating the accession of Emperor Leopold II, Joseph's brother. The librettist was the same young theology student whose approach this time was somewhat less prone to histrionics. The opening recitative begins once again with a reference to Joseph's death. He slumbers, slumbers, let the great prince rest in peace. When he died, death cried woe to the people, the sons of Teuton cried to the stars, woe, woe. Beethoven's approach this time is almost surprisingly low-key. He begins in the key of A-flat, commencing a tonal journey that traverses many roads before finishing in a triumphant C major. The soprano's first melodic statement is a gentle, mildly florid one, answered initially by a plaintive but noble melodic phrase in the first violin, one which repeats twice more in the measures ahead. This is followed by an equally gentle and restrained homophonic phrase, as the chorus sings, Let the great prince rest in peace. As the movement proceeds, a somewhat more intense tone is adopted, as the key changes to F minor and we encounter the first of several tempo and key changes, which keep the flow somewhat unsettled as the text changes in mood from a resigned introspection about Joseph's death to abject despair and finally to glimmers of hopefulness. Jehovah looked down in pity and dispelled the terrors of night, and the sky became rosy again. We'll hear the first several measures. As you could hear, Beethoven shifts stylistic gears fairly frequently, in consort with the changing text, which eventually describes the salvation that the new emperor brings with him in glorious terms. The sea-storms rage no more. The tears of the nation are dried. Hail, hail, hail! Now comes a shining cloud. It parts. Ah, what do I see? It is he, Leopold our emperor. Beethoven builds up an almost breathless expectation for the revealing of the name of the nation's savior with a series of short phrases where the voices sing, it is he, it is he, over syncopated string passages. The final climax, when it comes, is a grand one indeed, with military-style dotted note trumpet fanfare figures leading up to the final proclamation of Leopold's name. Here are the final measures. The soprano aria that follows is in many respects an impressive one. It begins with an elegant orchestral introduction in D major, featuring an attractive melody very typical of its era, which starts with a sustained note on the tonic, moves up the scale in a legato ascent until arriving on the dominant, which it repeats with portato marks four times. The next two measures introduce some rhythmic and harmonic variety with dotted quarters followed by eighths for a pair of sixteenths, and this is followed by a swirling scale line which pauses briefly on an E minor chord before taking us back to the dominant. Here it is, heard first in the solo flute, although anticipated in the opening measures first in the low strings and then in the first violins. As you heard, the theme is then picked up by the solo cello, which repeats it note for note down a pair of octaves. The introduction continues in this vein, variants of the opening melody now taken over by first violins before being handed back to the solo flute and cello. We naturally end up back on the tonic chord by the time that the solo soprano enters with this adoring tribute to Leopold. Flow, tears of joy, flow, Do you not hear the angel's greeting above you, Germania? Do you not hear the angel's greeting sounding sweet as a harp's whisper? Far away I saw Jehovah crowning him with blessings on Olympus. The soprano's melody, as it delivers the first line of text, is new, broadly arpeggiating up a G major tonic triad before making its way down by step in the first four by phrase ending on the dominant with a second phrase, repeating a rhythmic idea heard in the third bar of the first, taking us back to tonic. As the text moves on to telling of the angel's greeting, sweet as a harp's whisper above you, the soprano's line gradually makes its way higher and higher, peaking with a couple of dramatic references to Germania. Let's hear an excerpt beginning with the soprano's entrance. A series of exchanges between soprano and primarily woodwinds follow, and a sweeping, perhaps overly dramatic phrase builds to a powerful climax as we hear of Jehovah crowning Leopold with blessings on Olympus. This leads to an explosion of virtuoso writing for the soprano, with fast-moving, 16th-note melismas on the word Zagan, blessings, reaching ever higher into her range, peaking on a high C. The Joseph Cantata had of course featured some very dramatic moments, which could well be described as operatic. But nothing in that cantata was operatic in the sense that this passage, which does little more than display vocal technique, is overtly operatic. At the end of this flurry of virtuosic activity, the music quiets somewhat, as Beethoven moves briefly to B minor and returns to earlier portions of the text, now With an almost coquettish approach, still very operatic in its mood, and featuring some very effective duetting between soprano and solo flute, aided and abetted by the solo cello. This is followed by a lengthy orchestral interlude which brings back some ideas from the original introduction, which includes a quite inventive and surprising modulation from D major to B flat major before the soprano enters once again. Here's an excerpt of the soprano's coquettish passage, leading to the orchestral interlude and including the modulation I just mentioned. When the soprano re-enters, you heard just a little of that at the end of my excerpt, with Hear You Not the Angel's Greetings, the mood is dignified but restrained, and fairly quiet, although surging crescendos and decrescendos continue to make their presence felt, and solo flute and cello continue to make prominent contributions. This section concludes with long-held notes by the soprano leading to a brief cadenza-like passage, And after a fermata, we hear a varied and abbreviated return of the opening orchestral introduction. After which the soprano re-enters with her original broadly triadic theme and with the original text of "Flow Tears of Joy." The passage that follows draws from the first line of the aria, but in somewhat encapsulated and more urgent form. Solo flute and cello continue to trade off sixteenth-note flourishes and the soprano, too, jumps back into virtuoso mode with its own flurries of 16th notes. We interrupt this latest round of virtuoso display with a perhaps unnecessary series of firmadas separating cadenza-like flourishes from the soprano, and after one last dramatic peak on a high C and an orchestral finish based on now familiar themes, the movement comes to a close. Here is the conclusion of the aria. Two rather conventional recitatives follow. In the first Seco recitative, the bass soloist sings, Do you wonder, O peoples of the earth, that the races of Teuton receive such plenteous blessings? See, he comes, in his right hand the palm of peace, in his face the peacefulness and fortune of Germany. The smile of mankind lingers on his lips. Hail to him, hail to him. In the second, the tenor, with the accompaniment of the entire string section, sings, How beats my heart for bliss! People cry no more. I saw him smile, saw it as he ordained peace, as loudly then the people's joy rang out in heaven. There dwell no more the nightmares of misery, no longer the nation's burning tears. The storms are past." The second recitative segues directly into a trio in A major and marked Andante con moto, featuring soprano, tenor, and bass soloists accompanied by strings, clarinets, and horns. The text here is, You who called Yosef your father, cry no more. As great as he, whom we knew as father, he is also. People, cry no more. Again, it's a somewhat conventional movement, After a brief and sweetly lyrical orchestral introduction, the tenor begins softly leading the way with a simple dignified melody which, after an initial upbeat, moves ceremoniously down the tonic triad in its first phrase, while the second phrase, cry no more, reaches up higher in the tenor's range to evoke something of an emotional response. All of this against an equally simple but effective counter-melody in the first violins. The bass soloist then repeats a less ornamented variant of the tenor's melody, but when the soprano enters to do the same, she is joined by the other soloists who provide harmonic support. Let's hear from the end of the tenor's recitative through to the entrance of the soprano, where she is joined by the tenor and bass. The second line of text, as great as he, whom we knew as a father, he is also, is provided with a new but still relatively stolid melodic idea unfolded in duets, trios, and occasionally solo phrases which echo back and forth with the text, and so is he. The soprano occasionally is allowed to take flight on a limited basis from time to time. First and second violins are provided with active counterlines as the voices exchange parts. There continues to be strong and sometimes abrupt changes in dynamics, although it is not always easy to understand why. Elements from the first tenor melody return in both the soloist lines and the orchestral accompaniment, and the movement ends rather quietly, repeating the text, Cry No More. Here is the conclusion. The final chorus in D major and with an opening tempo indication of un poco allegro e maestoso is, on the whole, a more impressive movement. It certainly attempts to be grandiose, and at times comes very close to achieving it, although the multiple sections and constant contrast between them may not add up to the powerful cumulative effect Beethoven presumably had in mind. The text is... Hail, prostrate yourselves, you millions, on the smoking altar. Look up to the Lord of thrones who gave you his salvation. Sing pans of jubilation that the world may loudly hear. He gave us peace and well-being. He is great. He is great. Beethoven's orchestral writing is certainly at its most dynamic in this movement. It is, in fact, almost exuberant in places, and we get a sense of that right from the opening measures, beginning with the strings, which immediately make a vigorous statement of the tonic chord abounding with sforzando markings. The chorus enters in the second bar, no less robustly, with declamations of hail, hail, accompanied by oboes, horns, trumpets, and timpani with fanfare-like double-dotted chords. The choral voices proceed to move heroically up the tonic triad and then pause on a sustained A, the dominant, ending after a couple of bars with a fermata. Thus ends our first dramatic stroke. Now the tempo changes to Allegro Vivace, and the basses, doubled heavily by the strings, enter with a theme that sounds suspiciously like a fugue subject, and it will be, but not quite yet. For now the bass's opening phrase is answered by the entire chorus with a variant of that phrase, harmonized in four parts and followed by another similar cadential phrase. This choral activity is largely doubled by the orchestra, with a running pattern of eighth notes placed against it to assure that the level of rhythmic momentum remains high. All of this activity clearly remains in D major, reaffirmed by a series of dominant tonic cadences. But the momentum is cut off when Beethoven introduces an unexpected A sharp in the strings, forcing the key to B minor as the music quiets from forte to piano and the chorus sings a varied repetition of its previous phrase landing this time on a sustained F-sharp. As against it, new motives, based on the short, 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 long, upbeat figure that will sound familiar to Beethoven fans, dances above it in the strings. Just a few measures later, the action is cut off again with a fermata. We'll hear this new section beginning with the almost fugue-like subject and ending with the fermata I just referred to. We probably hear that sustained F-sharp in the chorus as the 5th scale degree in B minor, but when Beethoven picks up the action again, that F-sharp is now functioning as the 3rd of a D major chord, while the choral voices, led this time by the altos, introduce a new short motive, still rather military-sounding, that returns the dynamics to forte and begins a section where the alto's new motive is tossed around between all the choral voices Against throbbing eighth notes and forte pianos in the orchestra. As we move on to the text, look up to the Lord of Thrones who gave you his salvation. As we continue on, the chorus continues with broader but still rhythmically charged motives, but as the text repeats for the last time, we experience another shift. The dynamic softens suddenly from forte to pianissimo, and the momentum is halted by another fermata. (laughs) you <laughs> At this point, the earlier fugue subject returns, piano, introduced by the tenors against a series of rapid-scale figures in the lower strings, as the text reverts to its opening line, prostrate yourselves, you millions, on the smoking altar. This time around, Beethoven is a little more serious about actually following through with fugal imitation. Four bars later, the altos provide a modified answer, 4 bars after that, it's the bass's turn, back on the original pitch level. The sopranos enter with the subject a couple of octaves higher after that, and the dynamic level increases from piano to forte, and now the texture coalesces into a series of broad, homophonic chords in the chorus, similar to those heard earlier, accompanied again by punctuating chords and running eighth notes in the orchestra. But, as before, the buildup in energy fades fairly quickly, as the dynamics drop down again and the section ends with another fermata. Earlier sections then repeat, another near-fugue is introduced, and more broad homophonic choral passages continue, reaching a climax where a listener might reasonably think that the movement is finally coming to a rousing conclusion. But it's not, at least not yet, because after this climax, which comes to a stop on a dominant chord, we again drop down to pianissimo, a new tempo marking is indicated, allegro non tanto, And the strings provide a new series of undulating eighth notes. There are a few other new elements as well. The sopranos, later joined by other voices, contribute a new, almost patter-like phrase at the text, sing praises of jubilation, a phrase that would not have been out of place in a Mozartian comic opera. But this eventually leads to more conventional declarations of jubilation, the orchestral texture becomes busier, and the general mood even more heroic but Beethoven is not quite ready to give up on his repeated note pater phrase, and he even brings back his soloist briefly to get in on the act. The conclusion of the movement, which seems like a long time coming, feels almost comically flippant in some places and appropriately heroic in others. But it finally arrives, summoning up as much ceremonial pomp as any listener could desire. Here's the conclusion of the movement and the cantata as a whole. I suggested earlier that continuity was somewhat problematic for this movement, but of course listening to it in disassociated chunks of the sort I've provided is very likely to leave that impression no matter what. So perhaps the reasonableness of the continuity is something for every individual listener to determine when he or she has had an opportunity to listen to the whole movement and perhaps the whole cantata intact. At any rate, it seems clear that the young Beethoven poured his whole heart and a myriad of musical ideas into these two cantatas. The first has often been praised for the effectiveness of certain movements that look ahead to some of Beethoven's dramatic writing in his opera Fidelio, especially its earlier versions. The second cantata, while less overtly dramatic in the same sense, is probably more operatic in nature, and while it may suffer somewhat from an overabundance of musical ideas, and perhaps occasional deficiencies in its sense of proportion, it is by no means short of youthful exuberance or creativity. For the next episode, we'll look at the piano trios that make up Beethoven's first official opus number.